All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Psalms 44 and 45, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 44 and 45. We'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. The worship was uh, uh, just exactly the right songs for the text that we're about to read, to prepare our hearts for it. And um, you must want to do a work here in our lives. And don't know exactly what work that is. Everybody will be a little bit different this morning. We all come from different places and how our week went. And um, but we do pray that you'd, you would minister to each one of us um, custom, Lord, individually, meeting each one of our hearts and uh, help us to see you in your word um, as JC already prayed properly and to hear correctly. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter 44 kind of almost, almost paralyzed me verbally. I'll get over it. I'll get something out today. But um, in, this, in this psalm, which is one of the psalms from Korah, Korah's sons, um, different from David and all that. And you can kind of, we can feel that when we read these psalms. are a little bit different uh, than David's style. He really hits the complexity of it, of walking with the Lord and, and walking in this, in this world. Yesterday, we went to uh, the zoo, the Omaha Zoo, which you don't go to on Saturday. And you don't go in July. You know, we did both and had a wonderful time, but it was mixed, you know, a um, lot of mixed feelings and mixed things going on. I had a wonderful time with family, a wonderful time with extended family. We met cousins up there and aunts and uh, hung out and it was hot and sweaty all day long, all day long, just wet. And, um, and lots and lots of people, lots of different people, you know. And so there was mixed feelings as you went through the whole thing. Joy of seeing crazy-looking animals, sorrow in some areas, you know, and uh, maybe a little, a little irritation once in a while. Not a lot, just a little irritation once in a while. Um, it was, you know, you, you go into those enclosed places, and of course half of them are closed anymore. They're always under construction there at the Omaha Zoo. And uh, so you go into the jungle, and you can't go down below. Okay. So you're going to do the up above. And then the up above, the, the, the top part is not a loop. It's a dead end and then a reversal. So you're just, just it, okay, you get it. It was mixed. And so uh, it just, it, God was preparing me for this teaching in, in an actual event. And this psalm, he writes about the wonderful things God has done in the past for Israel. And he believes it. It's almost like you can see in the second section of four, it's, it's, there's four sections to this. The second section, he almost names it and claims it. I believe you, God, for these. And then the third section, he goes, um, but where are you? Kind of thing. And in the fourth section, he's like, we're losing badly, you know. And I'm, and I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not as simple as saying, as a friend wrote to me recently, just trust in the Lord. Of course, we're supposed to trust in the Lord. Um, but for what? You know, but for what is my question? For victory? Well, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to have victory every single time I trust in God. But it doesn't happen that way. Um, and what we see happening here in Psalm 44, I believe, is the psalmist, and as people of God, we experience all of the things of the nature of the Lord. And what I mean by that is sometimes he shows up 
um, as a mighty warrior in the Old Testament, it absolutely wipes out any, any foe. But we also see the exact opposite take place when Jesus Christ comes to the cross where he doesn't, yes, he wipes out the foe inevitably, but he also finds himself in the garden praying vehemently for God to do something or to deliver him from this cup. And yet nevertheless, and he goes and, and basically as far as the world's concerned and the way we would judge the situation, he lost at the cross. He died. He did not. He did not. But then he rose again. Okay, so I know there's victory, and I understand that. It was a spiritual battle. But in my day-to-day walk with Jesus Christ, I would like all my foes vanquished. I don't expect necessarily, although I'm told to carry my cross, that I'm actually going to be nailed on it that day, and that I'm actually going to lose, and that the, the enemies are going to spit on me and have victory and pull my hair and pull my beard, and I'm going to die, and they're going to laugh and think they won. And that's a hard thing, and that's what we see this psalmist go through. And that's why that song was so interesting. I don't know if you guys read ahead when you pick these songs. Sometimes I wonder if JC doesn't sneak a peek and then, you know, find songs to match. But um, they were very, I mean, right on. You're worthy of my praise regardless, worthy of my worship regardless of what I'm going through or how the battle is going for me here on earth, you know. Ultimately, we win. Ultimately, we go to heaven. Ultimately, there is no tears and there's no more sorrow and there's sadness. But until we get there, there's an awful lot of that, you know, and an awful lot of that waiting for us. You don't come to Christ and just have instant victory, you know, an instant perfect life. Life just goes on. You just have Christ with you now. So verse 1 of chapter 4 or chapter 44 of Psalms. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. We've heard the stories. You drove out the nations with your hand, uh, but them, the nation of Israel, you planted. So you removed the old nations and the bad nations and you planted our people. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, but they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. So he's just remembering how it happened. We, we went to the Jordan. We crossed over on dry ground, but that had nothing to do with us. We didn't build a dam. We didn't, you did that. You held back the waters and heaped up the waters. You know, and we walked across, and we just walked around Jericho, and the walls fell down. And so he's just remembering all that and how the nations that were in that land got evicted and removed out because they didn't worship you. We got planted there. But we know it wasn't our own strength. It was your strength that did that. So, given those are the stories we've heard from what you've done in the past, Lord, and what you uh, are capable of doing, I think that's the hard part, he now names it and claims it, basically, in verse 4. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall, I, shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. And boy, we want to stomp the devil under our feet after that one, don't we? You know, and raise our hands and praise the Lord. But the psalmist goes on, I think, is... I'm so glad that he does, because I get all of that. 
And yet oftentimes I find myself stomping the devil on my feet and I'm waiting for him to get stomped and he isn't stomped. He goes on in victory oftentimes. It's seemingly winning. And he says it out loud. These sons of Korah say it out loud. You will not find another religion in the world that will have a book like the book that we're reading that honestly just tells you how it is. I love that. That's how we know it's honest. That's how we know it's true. It doesn't give us a pie in the sky idea of what, you know, well, nirvana. It's out there somewhere. We just need to find it. And so we all walk and drift towards this dream that doesn't exist, you know. This guy's saying, look, I I know what you've done in the past for us. I know what you're capable of. I mean, you can part Red Seas. You You can do things. We're in trouble is what he's getting at. So I'm going to claim those promises of the past. I'm going to say those things out loud. Now come and do it. Let's do it again. I'm all for seeing some more Red Sea stuff, you know. Verse 9. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You've given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. That's a good question. My kids need to read these things and see these questions that other people have. It's very important. We can, we can misrepresent God in lots of different ways. And it can be in Sunday school. It can be in the way we teach our kids. We're almost afraid to talk about the obvious pain and suffering that we see all the time. And, and excuse it away and say, well, it's because, you know, we just need more faith and we need to have more. This guy's got a lot of faith, it sounds like. He's remembering God's word. He knows that God can do it for him today. And so he's saying, go do it, Lord, let's go do that. And then he's saying, but I'm not seeing that happen. I'm seeing a lot of bad things happen to us. And here's, here's where we make the mistake, I think, and we, when we witness to people or when we try to bring our kids to the Lord. We try to let them know or make them think that when they come to Jesus Christ, that that's going to solve a lot of these worldly problems. Now, it does, but it doesn't take away the suffering. It doesn't take away the difficulties. What, what the Bible does and what a relationship with Jesus Christ does is takes away my self-inflicting wounds. As I'm obedient to Christ, as I'm obedient to what the Lord tells me to do, I, I reap less weeds in my garden because I'm not planting weed seeds anymore. My garden's a little clearer, but make no mistake about it. The enemy does come in at night and plant seeds, weed seeds in our garden. And we've got to do something about that. We have to deal with the consequences of other people in our lives. I was having a wonderful time at the zoo with my family and looking at my kids' faces and their expressions when they see flamingos. You never go to the zoo to see a flamingo. They're kind of like window candy over here, right? But Bo had it in his head, I want to go see the flamingos. I'm like, not the bears, not the big cats, not the rhinos, you know, the important animals. No, the flamingos. The flamingos. All right. So we're on the train and I see the flamingos. I said, there they are. There's the flamingos. And I'm looking at them like, man, those are pretty amazing, weird looking. You ever look at a flamingo long enough, they've got these wrong beaks. They're just wrong. And their necks are wrong. 
and their color is wrong. I mean, everything about them is wrong. It said all works, though. It all, it's all right when you look at them, you know. So I'm starting to look at these flamingos a little more. So we walk past the aviary, and I'm like, oh, I think they're down there someplace. We're on our way to get. See, when I go to the zoo, I go from feeding station to feeding station. That's my goal. How long till I get to Alaska so I can get my ice cream that's over there? And they're thinking about animals. So we walk by the aviary on the way to get some more food for me. And I said, I think they're over there. And we go down, we look, and we stop, and there they are. There's a flock of, of, of these flamingos right there. And we start talking about it. You know, their coloring is based because of all the shrimp that they eat, and the coloring transfers into their wings. If they didn't have that kind of diet, they wouldn't be as pink as they are, you know. And so we get, I wonder how much shrimp they give them. You know, we go through the whole thing, and you know, we're staring at these amazing things, and they're just walking around, and their legs are bending the wrong way and doing all this. It's so cool to watch. I was thoroughly enjoying that. But I'm also in the background hearing all the bad parenting going on around me. And I'm seeing all the sin, and I'm hearing all the arguments, and I'm hearing all the things of the world that's happening around me all the time, you know. And it's hard for me. The kids are focused, and they're oblivious, and it's a, so glad, so happy. But as an adult, I'm like, oh, okay, it's 100 degrees out. Your kid is red from head to toe. They're not having fun, and they're not cranky because they're grumpy or because they're, it's because they're probably in sunstroke right now, you know. Do something. Take them to some shade. Give them some ice. Don't yell at them for being loud and obnoxious. They're trying to tell you something. You know, I got all these things. So I hold a parenting clap now. <laughs> Wanted to. It's a mix, you know. It's a mix. The psalmist here is letting us know that God does have victory, and Jesus does do sometimes on our behalf. But other times he lets us go to the cross like he went to the cross and we experience that side of his ministry also. He's got a lot of ministries. Some of those ministries are to let people pull your beard out and to let things go wrong in your life and to let you recover and to deal with and for the world to see you in difficult situations that you're going to worship him regardless of whether the cancer goes away or not. It isn't a matter of whether you had enough faith or not for the cancer to go away. It's that God said, no, this is something I'm calling you to. That's a difficult thing. And he says it out loud. And I want my kids to know that. And I want everybody in this room to, to feel more comfortable anyway in your walk. Because we all have these questions. Is it me? Am I not doing the right thing? Am I not pushing the right buttons of God to make these things take place in my life? No. You're doing just fine for the most part. You may need to do some self-evaluation to look at your walk. Because we do have self-inflicted wounds. There are some times where I don't have my quiet time and I suffer for it. There are times when I don't go to my knees in prayer and I lose battles that God wanted to win. The psalmist here is simply stating the obvious. We know these things about you. We ask you to do those things for us. And yet we find ourselves in a position of losing to the world of all places. Losing how though? He describes some pretty intense things that maybe you felt in verse 13. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. And I'm going to say you make us in front of all these in case we forget what he's trying to get across. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. You make us a scorn. You make us a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations. If you don't know what byword is, that's when you... Uh, 
when you take a word that describes something or somebody and ascribe it to a certain characteristic is all it means. You just, um, you make us a byword. Oh, you're a heathen or you're a, uh, you, you're all Cretans. You know, what a, what a dirty, rotten Cretan. Well, Cretan, that's a, you know, nationality, uh, an ethnicity or whatever. Uh, no, no, no. It's because they're known for this and you're acting like they do. So you make us, the nation of Israel, a byword. <laughs> you're such a Hebrew is the idea, you know, among the nations. You make us a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. They're winning. They're mocking, and they're not getting struck down by lightning, you know, is the idea. And I'm feeling that shame. I'm feeling that uncomfortable, you know, uh, I don't feel like a, a, a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God right now. I'm feeling really out of place. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of different ways you can read the word you, you make us. Um, it's not you cause us, necessarily. It's you make us. If you're not a believer here in Jesus Christ this morning and you're considering what he's done for you at the cross, he's forgiven you for your sins, that he's paid the penalty for your sins, your sins have separated you from God, you know that. You feel alienated, you feel distant, you feel like you're hopeless and you need to get closer to the Lord. That's a great place to be, and you're in the right place, and Jesus is the answer. But I want you to know something. He will make you a reproach. He will make you a scorn, a derision of all those around you. He will make you a byword. Oh, you're a Christian. He'll make you the shaking of the head among the peoples. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, he turns you into not just a victorious son or daughter of the Most High God who will eventually rule and reign with him in his kingdom. But until that day happens, you will become those things. He will, in your life, make you these things. I need to understand that. Not everybody's overjoyed when I tell them I'm a Christian. In fact, that invokes more anger and more emotions in people than I've seen if I told them I was a murderer, maybe, or a, or a thief or something. Oh, well, you know, God forgives thieves. I'm a Christian. I don't know if he can forgive you for that. It's strange the kind of feedback you get from that. The nation of Israel is walking with the Lord right now. See, if you had stopped right here in the psalm, you would say, well, maybe it's one of those moments, like in Judges, when they're not doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. But that's where section four comes in. He says, we are exactly doing what you've exactly told us to do. And this is happening to us. And so it's a very healthy psalm for us to all read as believers in Jesus Christ. Because bad things are happening to you or because the world is not accepting your gospel or believing your testimony doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Just because it feels like, I'm not getting ahead or winning or whatever it is that you feel like you should have by now, your expectations. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. He's asking an honest question. How come this is happening to us? Verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in, this, in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. This is, this is the reality of it. I am, we are walking with you and we are not winning in this world. 
from the world's standards. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. If this were true, certainly. And and the writer is saying, "I, I expect that then. I expect bad things to happen to us when we're not walking with you. But that's not what's happening. We're walking with you. Now, why does God have us in this psalm today? Why is this even here? For me, it's to prepare me for, and I don't want to be a, a doom and gloom, but it's, as I read the book of Revelation, it's a little doom and gloomy until he comes again. And we're moving towards that direction where the book of Revelation is going to begin to fall into place. We're going to begin to see things happening. And there's a lot of martyrdom. Now, we're going to be taken out from the earth. We know that. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But until that day comes, until the rapture takes place, there's a lot of persecution that takes place. A lot of things, well, we don't walk with like a force field around us. Um, As far as the world's concerned, we lose a lot of these battles. And so that's all he's saying. If this was happening to us because of our disobedience, I can understand it, but that's what I'm trying to get at. He says, I don't see the disobedience. I see us walking with the Lord. So he says, verse 22, which is the one you circle. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. This is a psalm, or this is part of the psalm that uh, Paul quotes in Romans 8 concerning the persecution of the Christians that the Christians were going through at that time. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The Nabon and claimant guys that just don't believe that bad things happen to good people who are obedient, being obedient to God, just they don't know history. They don't know church history. They don't know believers. And I don't know that they're walking a real honest walk. Can you imagine being in, you know, as, as many people were fed to the lions for, for Roman entertainment. Um, Christians were among them. Can you imagine the Naban and Claimant guys saying, ah, oh, oh, you know, if you had more faith, you wouldn't have gotten eaten kind of thing. No. Think about the, the people that were burned at the stake for trying to bring the Bible into a language that everybody could read as believers you know, by supposed believers. Well, if you just had enough faith, the, the, the flames wouldn't have, wouldn't have, no. So Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross if he just had enough faith. I don't, I, you know, you try to track all these feelings and thoughts that the world, we have to be very realistic about our walk with the Lord and what it's for. My salvation in Jesus Christ is not to save me from my difficulties in this world or reaping the consequences of other people's sin in this world. That's going to happen. I'm going to get sick at times. I'm, I'm going to have diseases come upon me because we live in a fallen, broken world. But that's the point. We come to Christ because we realize and we recognize the, the problems in this world and the difficulties and the brokenness of it because of sin. We come to Christ so that we're delivered from this world. We're delivered into everlasting life. And so the psalmist should be able to sing psalms and praise regardless of what they're going through because this is the broken world. And until it's redeemed, until Jesus comes and makes everything right the way it should be before the fall, we can expect these things and should. 
Yet for your sake, it's for his sake that we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter when a Christian dies in martyrdom, walking with the Lord, being in full faith, close to Jesus. There's a witness against the person that does it or the system that does that to them. Just like when Christ died on the cross, it was an innocent man on the cross. Everybody knew it. And it was a testimony against all those that were so wicked that thought that killing the innocent was to benefit the nation. You see, I hope we're prepared for that. Verse 23, awake, he says to God. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. That's where he ends. Hmm. The difficulties are real. The problems that you face, the addictions, the, um, the battles that you fight, come from yourself, the battles that we're in in this world, they're very real. The the vexing of your soul, it's a word we don't use very often or a phrase we don't use, but it's one that um, Lot was very well acquainted with as he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah but didn't partake of their sin or didn't approve of it. And it vexed him to walk daily in that in that place. I'm sure he enjoyed family meals at times. But still, it's hard to ignore the obvious all around him and the persecution he felt. Even that night, we got a taste of the persecution that he probably felt every single day as he lived there and tried to live righteously amongst all of that going on. They said to him, you always judge us. You're always a judgmental guy. Because he lived righteously, because he said God was important and that God was God, and because he tried to convince them that they needed God too, and they love their sins so much, that's their conclusion that they came to against Lot. You're always there sitting in judgment of us. You know, They hated him for it. We should not be surprised at this. Part of this as a pastor, I'm like, okay, how do I leave an encouraging note? Well, we have Psalm 45. It's a beautiful psalm. But I think we ought to be able to leave encouraged from 44. Because you're not crazy is the point. And you're not doing it wrong. And there isn't something more that's causing you to not have, I don't know what you expected, but this trouble-free life or this sickness-free life or this wealthy life or whatever it is that you maybe have been taught or encouraged in other areas of your life, maybe a book you've read or something or another teaching from someone. Psalm 44 is very real. It's very gritty. It's very important for us to take heart to. Jesus had a very interesting... He always made things... Better or completely different? For example, when Jesus comes in to, to a celebration of the wedding, right? This first miracle, he brought more joy. He brought more joy to that wedding. They were all excited about the wedding, but they were a little nervous and you know, a lot of anxiety from the host. We've run out of the, the wine. We don't know what to do. So he brought more joy to that wedding. Um, when they were mourning the loss of um, Lazarus, there was some serious mourning going on, but there's a lot of bitterness and anger and kind of the wrong kind of mourning. They were, when he showed up, they kind of let their feelings out. Where were you and why didn't you come? And, all. and Jesus brought true mourning, true sorrow and sadness to this. 
You're upset that I didn't come sooner and stop this from happening. I'm saying I wish you'd never eaten of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we would never have had this problem because death was not a part of my plan to begin with and that's why he wept at Lazarus. This is not how it's supposed to be. He brought true mourning. You think about the stormy seas. He brought, he brought calm to that situation. When, when the world says panic and when it's natural for us to panic, he brings peace, which is unnatural for us. But it's biblical and it's godly and it's natural in the heavenlies. You think about the Garden of Eden, or not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane when they were praying. And it's, it's a calm. It's been a busy day of ministry. Everybody's a little tired. Everybody kind of know what's, knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus mentioned something about death and a cross and that we're supposed to pray. And the natural man decides to fall asleep. But Jesus, in the midst of all this quiet night, this peaceful moment, this quietness from the crowd, brings in vehement prayer so hard that he's bleeding from his pores. He brings not stress and anxiety, but intensity to a very peaceful moment. The world just responds wrong to so many different things. And Jesus always comes in and says, this is the proper way to respond to any one of these four situations. I'll bring you true joy. I'll bring you true sorrow, not like the world. I'll bring you peace when everybody would be panicking. I'll bring you some intensity when everybody's asleep, you know. And we need to start thinking like that and seeing these Psalms the way they're written. It's important to be more than the Sunday, Wednesday Christian that sits, hears, leaves, forgets. But to be the kind of people that walk with our eyes wide open all day long, all week long for the rest of our lives and to see what's happening around us and to know spiritually how to respond in the spirit. There's a lot of stress here. I need to bring peace, not join in the stress or make it worse. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of laziness and quietness and relaxation. Yeah, but there's also some things that need to get done. I need to bring what God wants to bring, you know, and to walk that way. It's very important. Psalm 45. He talks about the Messiah and he talks about the bride here. Verse 1. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, almighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your, pres- and in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy or enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And then he goes on to the bride. So he describes the groom here. He describes this king, which is a messianic prophecy, actually. 
Um, the writer of Hebrews quotes verses 6 and 7 in, in Hebrews 1.8. This is where the writer of Hebrews ascribes this prophecy to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and also gives him the stamp of approval that he is God come in the flesh, not just a man, not just a prophet, not, not just a man that God used, but truly God come in the flesh. Your throne, O God, this is from the Father in Hebrews. The Father said to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. It's a very important verse to know as a believer. As the deity of Christ is always challenged and the word of God is always challenged. Those are the two attacks that the enemy has. He never strays from those, it seems. So it's a wonderful psalm as he writes about this beautiful king, you know. All I can do is, you know, normally we we write down the praises, he says, but my my pen's going to be my tongue. I'm going to say it out loud. I probably need to do that more often. Not just for the people around us' sake, but for my sake and for my personal, to hear it. Sometimes I have to talk out loud when I'm doing something. I, I hope nobody's around to hear me. They think I'm crazy, but I, I talk through things. And, okay, now I'm, the next thing I'm going to do is because I need to hear the instructions myself so I can follow them. You know, it's like a loop, and I need that. We need that. Your ears need to hear you sing praises to God. You need that. You may not think so, and you may think you're. You're doing everybody a favor by not singing out loud because your voice is so rotten. But no, you need to hear yourself sing those things. We need to hear our tongues talk about the great things that God has done for us. That needs to be our pen in our life. The world needs to hear us talk about the great things God has done. We're called to that. Grace is poured on your lips. Look at how he describes this great king. Full of grace, it's just poured upon his lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. You're, the, the, the psalmist says you're, you're fairer than the sons of men. And here's why. Your grace. It's just your grace is so attractive. Jesus was pretty rough in his teachings. I don't, I don't know that we know that. I mean, I, I think we do. But if you ever read him and read his sermons, they're not fluffy. They're not positive, encouraging messages necessarily, you know, that build us up all the time. It's just facts. But he had such a way of saying those facts and those truths with such grace that it was healing. It was a blessing. You could just receive it, you know? And they, I want more of that. I want to hear more of your truths, more of your facts that tell me about me going to hell, you know? Because there's such grace on your lips when you tell me about it, there's hope. I want to have that. I want to have a mighty sword strapped like he does. I want to do that. But here's how he rides majestically and prosperously. Because he holds to the truth, he is truth, and he's humble. There's humility and righteousness. He lives right. We need to live right. He has the truth, holds to the truth. We, we need that also. But that humility, I think, is the binder. That's what holds it all together. Truth with righteousness changes it from self-righteousness and your truth. When you have humility mixed with those things, it's palatable, it's understandable, it's believable, you know, and he has that. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. I don't know that he's always trying to kill everybody. 
But I do think he's trying to kill our pride, to kill the world's self-reliance, to cause them to seek after him. When his word goes out, it's sharp and it cuts to the, to the soul. It's a discerner of the hearts. And it causes people to fall into well, where they need to fall in a broken place in their lives where they can receive him and everything he has for them. And then he describes him as God come in the flesh. Now, um, 10 describes the bride. Listen, O daughter, the one who's standing beside this mighty king uh, in gold, uh, draped in gold, you know, from, from the king. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. The one thing that stuck out to me about the bride was the people that come to her. The rich will seek your favor and all. And I want to be careful how we, how we hear that. I don't want to take away from that. I, I think you live your life in such a way that people are drawn to you. Um, but I run the risk of wanting certain people to come to me, to acknowledge the fact that my way is right and all. And the people that were drawn to Jesus were those that were sick, those that were um, not accepted by society for the most part. Um, they were either lepers or they were sickly. Um, the healthy, they all, if they came to Jesus, they, they came to spy him out and to spy out his liberty. They weren't there because they needed him. They were there to see what he had and what made him so popular. But the people that actually came to Jesus that were there um, honestly were the ones that needed something and knew that he had the answer for them. The people that will be drawn to you in your life as you walk with Jesus are the, are the hurting or the people that don't have it together, the people that are sinners and that are lost, that nobody else wants to talk to. They wouldn't be welcomed in the clubs or the cliques. They're the people that, well, they know it. They know they're not accepted there when they want to come to a place where someone loves them and that there's grace on lips of whoever they're coming to. And we need to be those people. So I need to be careful when I get excited about perhaps a governor or a senator wanting to speak with me. You know, I get a little disappointed sometimes when I see the politicians look for the bigger churches to come talk. It's a bigger platform, there's more people, there's more votes, whatever it may be. And the pastors really enjoy that. Ah, yeah, you know, I've arrived. No, I'm more interested in the prostitute, personally. I'm more interested in the drug addict. That's who I'm interested in, always have been. I prefer the broken, um, those who know they need Jesus. It's just a more effective ministry there, you know. 
So that's where we have our communion. If you guys want to hand that out. As you guys are getting these handed to you, I kind of want to go backwards on this a little bit. From these, The guys that are having this meal with Jesus in, in, uh, in the Gospels, that's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's about to be murdered, um, crucified. And he's told them all what was going to happen. And, and 24 hours, or actually, yeah, 24 hours from that night, from that meal, they're all going to scatter from this table. They're all going to scatter from their host. They're all going to deny him. They're all going to hide. Uh, many of the men are going to hide in a locked room because they're afraid the persecution is going to come to them next. Um, and yet Jesus knows all that and is having this meal with them. These are probably some of the most <laughs> obvious turncoats, you know, you'll ever meet. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Oh, don't say that you're going to be martyred. You're never martyred. We're going to be with you all the way. That's what they're saying this whole night. And yet they won't be able to pray with him that night. They don't have a grasp of the reality of what's taking place. And Jesus knows all of that. And yet with grace on his lips, he gives them this meal. And he blesses this meal. Because he knows the frailty of the people. He knows the men are made but dust. He knows that. He knows that about us as well. To eat and drink this in a worthy manner, which is what we're called to do in Corinthians, is to eat and drink with that understanding. We are but dust. He doesn't want us to um, have false humility. Say, yes, I'm a wicked, worthless person. No, because you're not. You're, you're beloved of God, and that makes you very valuable. No, it's just to be very honest about, about in my flesh and in my own abilities, where I stand with Jesus. And, and outside of him, without him in my life, I am the one that turns my back on him. I'm that person. But Jesus tells Peter that he's going to betray him three times. The rooster's going to crow, and that's all going to happen. And he follows up with, but when you return, I want you to teach and feed my sheep. Basically what he's saying. I want you to take care of these guys when you return. Because he also knows that about us as well. That we're weak, that we're frail, that we have a tendency to, to shy away from persecution or acknowledgement of who he is out loud. When you return, I want you to feed my sheep. There is that opportunity. He's full of grace. And I don't know if that's where you are this morning or not. Some of you may be right there this morning. I don't know if I can come back to God right now. I don't know if that if he wants me here. I don't know if anybody else wants me here. But I want you to know that this morning. God wants you here. Jesus wants you here. And he knew that. He knew you were going to go away. And he knew you were going to come back. And now he wants you to do one thing. Just feed him. Take care of the people around you. His way. With his gospel. With his word. With prayers. With um, worship of God. And, and encouraging them. And bringing them to him. That's that. Jesus' ministry was broken people. Getting healed. Walking away. Grabbing more broken people. And bringing them. And this constant flow. That's how the church was added to daily. That's how it multiplied. For no other reason except for there is the source of healing. There is the well of everlasting life. And people going to get people, other people that were thirsty and hungry and broken, and bringing them to that place. He says, Peter, you know, you're going to know how fickle you can be and how bad a person you are by the time this night's over. And when you return, 
want you to bring more people to me. I want you to feed them. That's what we're called to do. So as we have this and we're reminded of that about ourselves, help us to be also reminded about our mission and what God's called us to. To seek out those people. To find them. And to minister to them. And to bring them to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this bread. Then the night that you were betrayed, you took it, you broke it, you passed it out to the disciples, you gave thanks. And you said, this is my body broken for you as often as you eat this. Do this in remembrance of me. And the cup that they had that night, you passed it around after you blessed it and prayed. This is the cup of my new covenant. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And this morning, we remember you, Jesus. We remember why you came. We remember your mission, that it was a salvation of souls from people's sins and the consequences of those sins. Lord, help us to remember that about ourselves today, what you've saved us from, but also that there are others out there that need this salvation, that we bring them to this place where we've found such grace, such mercy, such forgiveness that can be found no place else. Help us to bring them there to you. In Jesus' name, amen. See, Lord, we're so thankful for who you've made us into now as believers that we are healed, that we have been delivered, that you have forgiven us, and that you love us with an everlasting love, and that nothing can separate us from that love. We're thankful for that. Help us to bring as many people to you as possible. As long as we live and breathe, Lord, help us to live for you and to breathe for you, to tell the world as if our tongues were the pens of all the good things you've done and want to do. There's a lost and dying world out there, Lord. There's there's plenty for all of us to minister to help us to reach each and every one that we can in Jesus name. We pray. Amen.